Welcome to the Interlock Podcast. Interlock is a Bible study integrating the Genesis to Revelation narrative, doctrine, and apologetics for believers to live as thriving disciples of Christ. You're listening to an audio recording from a class. To access the notes, please visit interlock.online slash audio. The following recording is the overview of the series. Dear Heavenly Father, we are very thankful for this time we have together to meet all these uh, new class members, these believers who want to uh, participate in the interlock class. We ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit's guidance now as we kind of uh, discuss how the class will run and give an overview uh, of the entire course, uh, an overview from Genesis to Revelation. And we just pray, Lord, that... uh, The content makes sense to everyone and that they're willing to fully sign up and participate in the rest of Interlock as well. Allow us to have good fellowship and get to know uh, the ones who have come in. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we can hear and see each other clearly without any problems. So we pray you guide our time and we look forward to a fruitful session together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, welcome to Interlocked. Uh, This is our overview session where we bring you through what the series is about. But basically, the series has three uh, sections, uh, tracks, so to speak. We're going to bring you through a Genesis to Revelation narrative. It includes a lot of apologetics as well. And and we're going to teach truths that come out of these events. But just a quick introduction first. Uh, I'm Jen and he's Amos. Hi. You're a husband and wife. And uh, we're Singaporeans. Uh, we have three sons. They are 20, uh, 2, 23, 24 years old. Okay, we've been missionaries for a while. Um, and we, the organization that we're with is called Anchored International. And uh, we are focused on evangelism and discipleship. But particularly also, uh, we write curriculum uh, to, uh, for evangelism and discipleship. So the class that you're in now is a discipleship class. Um, it takes around two years to finish because we go pretty much pretty in depth. And today you'll find out, you know, how we do the series. Mm. So now all of you are going to have notes. Now today we've already sent out notes. Now there's a reason why we send out notes is because we know that not everybody's going to make every single class, uh, for two years. So the notes and the audio recording, you're going to get audio recordings for each lesson that we have. So if you, happen to miss a lesson, you have the ability to catch up before you join us with the next lesson. You know, we can't emphasize enough that uh, you should not miss lessons in between because we don't want to have gaps in between mm. the biblical narrative. Yeah, so even if you can't <clears throat> attend a session, that's okay because the notes and the audio recording allows you to, to catch up. Okay, but if you have your notes with you, did all, were all of you able to uh, print out or you have access to the digital copy of the notes. Everyone okay? Okay, so we do recommend that you print it out if possible in color. Okay, if, if any of you have, uh, what do you call that, the, the ink kind of tank of your printer, that's really cheap to have. But if not, uh, so you can still follow online as well. Now, to, just to give you a direction of why interlocked, you know, have, how many of you read novels still? Any of you read novels or books? Okay, nobody reads anymore. <laughs> okay, let's imagine though, you have a novel in your hand, okay? And 
in starting to, to read the novel, you turn to the middle of uh, the book and you start reading a couple of pages and then you turn to the back of the book and you start reading a couple of pages. And then you turn to the front part of the book and you start reading a couple of pages. You know, and if a friend walked by and said, hey, that looks like an interesting book. Can you tell me the story? You think you'll be able to tell her an accurate story of what you just read? Well, you have your interpretation of what you think the story is. And if somebody else also did the same thing, reading three sections of different parts of the book, they will have their interpretation. You know, you have bits and pieces and fragments. You might have confused ideas of what the book is about. You know, and most of us know, no, when you read a novel, you really do want to start from the first page and go right to the last page. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because unfortunately, many of us who grew up in church, you know, we read the Bible like this. We kind of hop from this part to that part and we get some ideas, but we don't really have a good idea of the whole overall narrative of the Bible. I mean, it is very beneficial to go into a deep dive into certain parts of the Bible, but it's also incredibly helpful to have the entire narrative. But in truth, in truth, many of us who grew up in church or have spent many years in church, we almost treat our Bible like a dictionary. Oh, I'm feeling sad today. Where can I go to find verses to help me with my sadness? You know, oh, you know, my friend, uh, my friend's uh, loved one passed away. Where can I go to find something to comfort or encourage? So kind of treat the Bible like a dictionary. And sometimes we end up with confused ideas. But what we want to see today is that, you know, God is not a poor communicator. God is an excellent communicator, you know, and he has structured his word in such a way that we can understand it and in its proper context. So we want to read the whole message that he has left with us the way that he intended. And what we also want to say is that it's going to be helpful for us not to read any scripture without putting it in the context of the whole of scripture. You know, we want to consider the whole of scripture. So whatever we read of scripture, when we consider it within the context of the whole of scripture, it's going to make a whole lot more sense. Now, why is this important? <clears throat> we want to have strong faith. You know, we don't want to just be hmm, yeah, easily toppled by different ideas. And we really want to thrive as disciples of Christ. Why is this important? Because out there today, there's a lot of unbelieving worldviews. You know, and we, we soak it all up, sometimes even without knowing. So, so for instance, churchgoers today, we are actually bombarded by many unbiblical worldviews from mass media, schools, or the workplace. So in the middle of your page, we have a bullet list. Mm, so some of the things that we are constantly hearing all around us are like those three bullet points there. For example, you may hear, you have full control of your life. You can make yourself whole. You have what it takes inside you to be everything you want to be. You often see posts like these, for example, on, say, Instagram. Or another one, we are all victims in this evil world. Evil will always be present. We just need to learn how to live with it. Or third one there, you have your truth and I have mine. There are many ways to get to the same place, heaven. So how should Christians think of these ideas that we are surrounded by, these statements or variants like it. Now, other churchgoers are ambushed also, or they're trapped with accusations and challenges 
against the biblical worldview. For example, in the next three bullet list there, people will say things like, you know, institutions like marriage and family are just outdated and arbitrary ideas. They are random and made up, so people should be able to change them to suit their needs. And this is exactly what we see happening. We want to redefine marriage and redefine family because why should we follow, why do we need to follow these ideas from the past? Shouldn't we just update it? Or the second bullet point there, how can you worship such an evil God? Haven't you read in the Old Testament that your God ordered genocide and intolerance and rejected religious harmony? So how do we respond to that? Or this classic one, if your God is a God of love, how can he? And there are a million ways to finish that sentence. But it always starts with, if your God is a God of love, how can this happen? How can this happen? So as people who love God and follow God, are we able to respond with reasonable answers? You know, would it surprise you if we shared that some of these statements, you know, in the in the, some of the classes that we teach, even church-going people would say, I, I agree with some of these statements. Would it surprise you if we told you that? <laughs> you know, we are, we are so surrounded by unbiblical worldviews and unbiblical thoughts that what we want to do in this series is examine these things and ask, does the Bible have answers for these? Does the Bible have a reasonable response to this? Because understanding that God has a perspective is going to help us with our faith. Otherwise, you and I, we're going to start questioning the God of the Bible and we too are going to start pushing back on what he teaches. So what we want to do in this series is we want to identify what's the biblical worldview. Now, what does normal look like? What is God's perspective on things? Only when we are very clear on what's normal, then we are able to sniff out okay, and we can identify, okay, that's an abnormal thought. That thought does not come from the Bible. You know, my mom used to be a banker. And one of the things that she had to do, this was back in the old days, okay? She would be counting notes. Now, as she counted the notes, she got so good at identifying which were the real notes that even with her eyes closed, she could fish out fake, fake, fake. She could fish it out just by feeling it. You know, she didn't even need to look at it. That's what we want to achieve within this series, that we, are, we know the biblical worldview, you know God's perspective so well, that when we hear something that contradicts the biblical worldview, we'll say, okay, we're going to flag that. We're going to flag that. So that's what we're trying to do here. We don't want to mix biblical and non-biblical worldviews and come up with our own idea of who God is or our own version of Christianity. It's not what we want to do. Now, why are we doing this? If you turn to page two, we're going to describe to you a very common situation. Now, Amos and I had been Sunday school teachers for many years. You know, I started in my late teens and he started in his early 20s. And here's a, here's a all too common observation that we've made. Okay, so here's a fictitious guy, although the situation is very real. Okay, Mike. Okay, Mike is in church and he learns from church. You know, very Sunday school thing, God is love. Mm. So look at the little diagram there, the little circle. So he's learned this one piece of truth. This is from 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Okay, good. That's the truth. He learns that. But the problem is Mike cannot really explain why he believes God is love. Yes, the verse says that. 
But what's the what's the witness? What is the experience he has or the history of God that he that he knows that God is love? So he doesn't have examples or evidence to help himself or anyone understand the reason for this belief. Then the media and his friends, they start to question, they start to attack uh, his belief. Again, they say things like, if your God is such a loving God, why is there pain and suffering and evil in the world? Or if your God is a God of love, then how can he let my mother die of cancer? Why did that happen? Or, you know, if your God is in control of the universe, then he really must be evil. Look at the devastation caused by the recent earthquake or wildfire or floods or war. So many lives lost. So many people displaced. You call that a God of love? What is going on? How can you say a God is a God of love when Christians themselves are so full of hate for people who are not like them? So on and on, these questions come at Mike. So look at the middle diagram there. So there's Mike with a little one piece of truth. God is love. But there's this mass of unbelief coming at him, coming against his little one piece of truth. And you know what happens over time? The unbelief flanks and surrounds his one piece of truth. And so Mike cannot answer this. He feels overwhelmed. He has no answer to these questions that he's surrounded with. So what happens? So if we look over on page three, this is what happens. In a very short time, the unbelief chokes and crushes that one piece of truth. Mike starts to believe what his friends are saying. How can God be a God of love if all these terrible and evil things happen? He, start be- he starts to believe what he sees on, in the news, on Facebook, on Instagram, on, on TikTok. And so his little piece of truth is swallowed up by a wave of unbelief. And the result of it is he stops believing in the one piece of truth. He stops thinking that God is love. Because he can't see the evidence of this. So here are the steps. The first step to Mike questioning the Bible without arriving at any good answers. So he was trying to understand God from the world's perspective. And as a result, he left the church because he couldn't find the answers to these questions. So what are we trying to do here? So lower half of page three now. Here in this class, we're trying to build and integrated, interlocked, the title, hence the title, an interlocked network of God's truth in the minds of every believer in church goers. So we go back, kind of rewind Mike's example and stuff in the beginning. So now just imagine Mike again, learning that God is love and he's in a small group and they're covering biblical events, chronologically going from Genesis to Revelation. Now with each major event that the small group looks at, they start to see God's character. What is he doing? What is he like as he acts in history, as he interacts with people in history? With each event, they start to see more and more what God is doing, what he is like. Just like how when you get to know someone over time, as you interact with them, as you see them talk, as you see them behave, as you see them make decisions, you get to know what a person is like. So the Bible is laid out that way, event after event, seeing things from God's perspective. And so Mike starts to build up evidence, an understanding of God's character, what it means. And the Bible says, God is love. He sees what love is like, God in action. So if you look at the bottom diagram, his one piece of truth is now not isolated. 
Rather, it is connected to every other event and truth in the Bible. So it starts to build a framework, an interlocked network of truth, as you can see there. So rather than one isolated piece of truth, now there's this whole massive structure, what we call nodes, or some students like to call it the bubbles. They're all tied in together because each one supports and explains uh, the other truths. And so now when the wave of unbelief comes at might, as it will, guess what happens? So you see the mass of unbelief coming, and you see now Mike has this network of integrated truth. So look over on page four. This interlocked network of truth is able to push back because now Mike has content. Mike knows God's character through how the way that God has revealed through scripture, event by event. So he can now respond to these questions. He can respond to deceptions he can respond to unbelief. First of all, to, so that his faith is not shattered. And then second, to be able to respond with wisdom when people ask him tough questions. So what we're going to see is as we read through scripture, like how Jen was mentioning, if we just hop, okay, today we read Judges. Next week, we'll do the Gospels. After that, we'll do a letter of Paul. And then we go back to Deuteronomy. Rather than hopping back and forth, we're going to go chronologically and see how each event follows the other and what God is revealing with each event. So rather than all the stories or events rolling around in our head like a, like a loose collection of marbles, we're going to assemble them into a framework so that the whole thing makes sense from end to end. Yeah, I think most of you have come in through your friends having uh, done interlocked with us or a friend of a friend. Okay, so you can ask them how it is, but we start building this out. Okay, and what the reason why we want to do that is we want to give ourselves stability. So the first objective for, for the class, for the series, is that we are so stable and strong in our own foundations that later on we can answer others who have questions as well. We want to have a real assurance and uh, stability in our God. Now, everyone okay so far? Okay, so that's the background, okay? Now, right now we're going to do a 10 cent tour. Now, why do we call it a 10 cent tour? Treat this like a tour brochure, okay? Or uh, kind of like a tour guide. Like we're tour guides right now, kind of telling you, okay, when we get to this country, this is what we're going to see. These are the sites we're going to go to. This is the food that we're going to eat. Okay, so treat this next section like a 10 cent tour, like a tour brochure. Now, some of you may be wondering why 10 cent. We say 10 cents because we're not going to show you any scripture today. Okay, and it's, it's really worth not very much if you, we don't show you scripture. Starting from next week, you're going to see that almost a one quarter of every lesson is scripture. Okay, because we don't want to give you our opinion of things and you should not listen to our opinion unless we can show you the scripture. Okay, so don't believe anything that we say unless we show you scripture. So today is really just a 10 cent tour. Okay, it's kind of like a high speed train going through what you're going to cover in the next 55 lessons. So it'll give you a overall flavor. So we say today is a high-speed train, huh? because you know how tours are like, right? Here on the left, you see this. Here on the right, you see that. And then you barely see it, and it's gone already, okay? But we want to give you the overall idea, okay? To know what you've signed up for, because it's not too late to back out if you think, this is not what I signed up for. Now, what are we going to do? Take a look at the timeline at the bottom of page four. 
You're going to see this timeline in every single lesson because we want to, you to know where in biblical history we're talking about. So today we're going to have a summary of the key highlights. Now, some of you may be wondering, how do you choose these? How did you choose to go through these events? And it's because when we look at the New Testament, for instance, when we look at Paul's speeches, when we look at Stephen's speech, they cover these events. And we know that it is uh, important for, for you know, us as Christians to know. So what are the events we're going to go through? Okay, we're going to talk about creation, fall, flood, and then we're going to go into Babel. And right after Babel, Abraham, and then what God does with Abraham's family. The Exodus, law, conquest period, the kingdom period, we're going to go into the exile, and then the partial return. So that's all going to be in the Old Testament. And then we're going to go into the life of Jesus and what he accomplished. We're going to look at the cross and then the church. Now, our present is in blue there. So we are living in this present, but before us would be final judgment. Okay, so this is a broad overview. And you will see that in some of the lessons, it blows up. Okay, it's kind of like pinch and zoom. We pinch and zoom into more detail. But today... Much apologies, it's going to be a monologue, okay? It's typically not a monologue in a, a usual class starting next week, but today will be a monologue because we want to bring you through what we're going to go through. Okay, so on page five now, we're going to start with creation. And what we see about creation is this. We're going to learn about God's character. Now, one thing as we go through the series, we're going to really focus on when God does this, what does he reveal about his personality and his character? Now, the God of the Bible is not some bland person. He has a character. He has a personality. He's like this, and he's not like this. And we really want to get to know him for who he is. And one thing we're going to see is that there's a very clear creator-creature distinction. The God of the Bible is not just a superhuman. Okay, He's not just kind of like us, but better. He's not like that. He's infinitely good. And he's infinite. Now, he created creatures, but creatures are finite. So we need to understand that. And next week's lesson, we're going to go right into that. For instance, when we say that God is not like the humans or the creatures he created, sometimes people like to say, hey, if you say that your God is so great, he can do anything. Ah, that means your God can lie, right? The God of the Bible can lie to you, right? Now, sometimes we'll go, oh dear, how, uh, how to answer this statement? How to answer this challenge? If I say, no, he can't lie, that means he can't do everything. If I say that he can lie, is that really in God's character? Okay, you have that in your head, okay? Because next week we'll answer that. Okay, now it makes a big difference whether as Christians we think that the God of the Bible can lie to us or not. It makes a big difference, okay? So we'll talk about that next week. But one of the things we want to talk about here is this. When God created man, God created us in a very specific way, physically, you know, psychologically, and spiritually. And God also designed us to live and to thrive in a certain way, okay? It's very intentional. But after God created the first man and woman, he also put in place certain divine institutions. Take a look at the top diagram there on the right. God put in place the first three divine institutions which are supposed to help society thrive. You see man at the bottom there, and God gave man the divine institution of responsible dominion. 
So people were supposed to live responsibly. They have responsible choice. They have free will. But on top of that, God designed mankind for marriage. That's the second institution. And after that, designed mankind to have families as well. So God gave man and woman together the ability to procreate. Why did God do this? Because God wants families to all exercise responsible dominion, take care of the earth together. Now, the word is divine institutions because this, responsible dominion, marriage, and family are God's ideas. It's God's ideas. Now, this is what God defines as normal. This is how normal human beings would live. After the creation week, God turned off the processes that he used to create and everything was perfect. And that's God's definition of normal. Okay, now, the event that we see after that is the fall. Mm, so the next half of page five there. So today, there are many different non-Christian worldviews floating out there. But they share, many of them share three common ideas. One of these ideas is called the continuity of being. And that sounds like a difficult phrase, but we'll explore it in more detail next week. But the continuity of being briefly, what this means is that the idea is this, that gods, man, animals, nature are all essentially the same, but they're on a scale, they're sliding up and down the scale. So on one end, you have this gods, lower than that are perhaps, you know, spirit beings, then people, then animals, then nature, then rocks, and then that kind of thing. So it's all on the scale. You can move up and down the scale. So people can slide up and can be promoted to be gods or demoted down to animals. So that's one idea floating out there. It's a non-biblical idea. But this is not what God did when he created and designed the world. Now God said he created each creature to procreate after its own kind. So what this means is that a plant does not turn into an animal and man does not become a god. So where did this idea of sliding back and up and down the scale, this continuity of being comes from? Does the Bible tell us the origin of this idea? It does. So a little background here. So God created spirit beings like angels before he created man. Now, the most powerful angel was called Shining Star or Morning Star. Now, he decided to rebel against the Creator, rebel against God. So now he's known as Satan. And his life goal is to destroy everything that God created and to foil God's plan. So when Satan approached Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden there, he intended to deceive them. And he told Eve that she could, hey, Eve, you could level up and be like God. He, he was telling us she, a human, can, can become a God. Now today, people are still exposed to this same idea of this continuity of being, but with different and more modern updated names. So one modern name for this, of a, of a creature changing from one thing and morphing into another, a higher level creature, is actually evolution, the idea of molecules to man. Now, we will be identifying these pagan ideas as we go through uh, interlock, and we will see that these are actually introduced by Satan in the Garden of Eden, and is still existing in the world today. Now, what happened there with Adam and Eve was that 
They believe Satan, God's enemy. Rather than believing the Creator, they chose to believe Satan's lies and they rejected God. So as a consequence, now they would die physically and also be eternally cast into the lake of fire. And so their bad choice also had severe consequences on the three divine institutions we just mentioned of responsible dominion, marriage, and family. These divine institutions were all damaged uh, by the fall. Mankind starts perverting them. So things went from perfect and normal to become abnormal. So now we live in a world that's abnormal. So nothing and no one is normal. So even the way we think is perverted. We may think we're very clear-minded, but the Bible tells us, no, that's not how it is. We are fallen, not just from the neck down, all of, all, all of ourselves are fallen. So people are fallen. Nature is also damaged and the divine institutions are also damaged. And so no one is truly happy. Now, another idea that the unbelieving worldview has is that evil will go on forever and that there is no way to escape evil, no way to escape sin and suffering. But this is not true. Now, the Creator God, in His mercy and love, He immediately told Adam and Eve that He had a rescue plan for them. And this plan would involve a man who would be specially born of a woman. No, no, no male father, no human father involved. And this uh, offspring of the woman will battle Satan and defeat him. So God will not leave the world in this evil, abnormal state forever. So if you look at the diagram there, what, we are, what the Bible tells us is that God puts a time limit on evil. So look at this. At creation, when he finished creating, everything was good. No evil present at all. And God says, this is what normal looks like. But at the fall, as you can see in the diagram, evil was introduced. So now we live in a world that's mixed with good and evil. That's all we've ever experienced. But God says, this is not going to run on this way forever and ever. He's going to bring an end to this. And the way that he'll bring an end to this is through judgment there. And with judgment, he will separate good from evil, returning his creation back to normal again. So his rescue plan would save man from eternal death. And rescuing man and separating good and evil, though, will come at a cost. What was the cost? Well, God showed a picture of what it would cost by bringing about the first death in creation. God killed an animal. He skinned it. And then he used that skin to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. Now, what we're going to notice is that no other religion out there has a solution for evil. Evil will just keep going on. It's always been here and always keep going on. But in the Bible, God says that evil is bounded. So the unbelieving worldview really has a problem with evil because evil never goes away. In their worldview, evil never goes away. In the biblical worldview, God says he will discriminate. Take a look at the diagram on the right-hand side. God will discriminate and he will separate good from evil. He's going to confine or quarantine evil forever. Now, one of the things we're also going to see is that when God created mankind, God created mankind with responsible choice. Sometimes people like to use the word free will. Well, free will is okay to use, 
But you know, we prefer the word responsible choice because we will have to live with the consequences of the choices that we've made. And we're not going to be able to determine the consequences. We can have the choice, but we'll be accountable for our choices. So what we see happening in biblical history is this. Even after the fall, the descendants of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, chose, they chose to rebel against God. Now, the time after the fall, you know, leading up to the period of the flood was very interesting because people live very long lives up to 900 years. So can you imagine when people live such long lives, you know, so many generations of people are alive at the same time. You know, today, we maybe have three or four of our own family's generations alive at the same time. But at that point in time, you had nine generations alive. So Adam and Eve were still alive and they could tell their descendants, yeah, you know, we were in the Garden of Eden and then, yeah, we made, we made this decision, you know. They could tell them that. So despite the descendants hearing from Adam and Eve, they still decided that they would reject God. You know, they would live as if their own God. They are their own God. So this is the time period right before the flood. They decided that they are their own ultimate authority. Now their attitudes and the way that they live and behave disgusted God so much. God says, okay, you know what? I'm going to send global judgment. I'm going to judge the whole earth because of how you are like. So in a sense, God pressed the reset button by sending a global flood. But by sending the global flood to destroy all the, you know, air-breathing creatures, God taught some really important lessons. Let's turn to page 7 there. Now, five lessons we can learn from the global flood. Now, why these five lessons are important is because these five lessons also picture how God was going to save mankind from eternal death. Okay, so the first thing is there's grace before judgment. Before God sends judgment, there's always a time period where God gives people the opportunity to repent, to turn from their wicked ways, to change their minds about how they're living. Second thing is, it's really crystal clear who God will save and who God will judge. It's not a lucky draw. Okay, it's not a lottery. You know, people will not be confused. In the event of the flood, it was very clear who God saved. Those who physically got into the ark were saved from the global flood. Those who did not get into the ark were judged. There's only one way of salvation. There was only one ark. There was only one boat. And in this boat, there's only one door. Now, we'll talk about why that is the case. You know, when, even now when we think of a, a big place, even a cinema hall, there are at least four exits for fire safety reason, you know, but God told them, no, it's going to only be one door. And this ark was designed by God. God was making a point. There's no way to be safe except one door, one ark. Okay, number four there, man and nature impacted. We see that the global flood changed the entire geography of the world, changed the whole world. But there's a way to be saved, and the way to be saved is by faith. So Noah and his family were saved because they trusted in God. So God actually used the picture of the flood as a visual aid, as a lesson on how he was going to finally rescue man from eternal death. So these same five lessons are true for how he plans to save man. 
Now, after the flood, what happened? We have eight people on earth, Noah and his family, but God reinstated the divine institutions. God reminded them, responsible dominion, marriage, and family. Okay, and these were things that would build up society. But now, because people before the flood, and we'll see, God knew that even people after the flood will live wicked lives. God put in place two other divine institutions, number four and number five. These two divine institutions were not to build up society, but they were to limit evil in society. The fourth divine institution is civil government. Civil government. So government is actually God's idea. Government is not mankind's made-up idea. God put in place civil government. Why? Because now, after the flood, he told mankind, he values the life of people so much because mankind are made in his image that if a person was murdered, he demands the life of the murderer. Okay, so he put in place capital punishment. It is God's idea to put in place capital punishment to restrain evil. So that's a fourth divine institution. So God gave the power of the sword, the power to take away life. And you can't just have a voluntary organization doing it. You need to have proper structure. So God put in place civil government. Now, God was putting in place the structure to enable society to provide just enough justice to give man hope that one day good will indeed overcome evil. Now, God also did something interesting. Look at the bottom of the page. God made a legal contract, a formal contract. Now, you and I are familiar with contracts. You know, some of us have mortgage contracts, insurance contracts and all that, or business contracts. Now, God put in place a legal contract. And we will notice that the God of the Bible is the only God that makes contracts with mankind. That says, okay, I, I'm going to do this. And in this case, he says, I'm never going to flood the earth again. It was an unconditional contract. Now, an unconditional contract is interesting because God is basically saying, it doesn't matter whether you are good or you are evil. An unconditional contract says that I will never flood the earth again. doesn't matter how you choose to live. God will keep his part of the promise that he will never flood the earth again. So God will keep this contract or this covenant. Now, what happened after the time of the flood? Mm, so the next event there, bottom of page 7 now, is Babel. So in this period after the flood, again, we see multiple generations living together. In fact, if you count it up there in the Bible, there are at least 11 generations living at the same time. So can you imagine more than double what we're familiar with. Some of us, we have four generations of our family alive at the same time. But here now, there were 11 generations living at the same time. So Noah lived to 950 years old and his son Shem lived 600. So imagine during the span of their lifetimes, they could tell their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their children after that what had happened at the global flood judgment. But we noticed something interesting as well in the biblical record. The post-flood people, their lifespans start to decrease significantly. In just a few generations after Shem, the lifespan of the average person is now shortened to about 100 years now. So no longer those hundreds of years. 
but just hundreds, 100 years or so. But as I mentioned, because Noah and Shem, they had such long lifespans, they could remind people what had, what had happened, what was God's history with them, and how God had judged the entire world. So this means at this point in time, everyone had access to God's history and truth. Everyone was familiar with what had happened, what the Creator God of the universe had done to the earth. So no one was clueless about why things were the way that they were. Now, because everyone on earth was descended from Noah and Noah loved God, the post-flood people had such great potential because just imagine after the flood, the people left standing on the earth. Literally, the only ones left are all believers in God. So they were kind of off to a good start. They could live in obedience to God. But what the Bible records is that within a few generations, we see again people living evilly. You know, like the ancestors who were destroyed in the flood, they wanted to be their own God. They wanted to define their own truth. They wanted to live life without God interfering. So they decided to build a waterproof tower that could reach up to the heavens and make themselves famous. So in a sense, they were beginning a man-centered pagan kingdom that was opposed to God. Now, instead of using the fourth divine institution of civil government to limit evil, they perverted the idea of civil authority. They used civil government to promote anti-God beliefs and actions on all society. So they used this, this idea of government to organize themselves to collectively rebel against God. So now it wasn't just individuals rebelling against God. They said, we're going to organize ourselves to do so. So that's bad. So what we see is people before the flood and people after the flood chose rebellion against God. Now this means that all mankind would be headed into eternal separation from God. That's not good news. So what did God do? So if God had left mankind to do whatever they wanted, they would end up separated from Him for eternity in the lake of fire. But because He is a merciful God, he interrupted history. So here we come to the event of Abraham here. Now, previously, God had communicated with, with everyone globally. His message was spread throughout the world as a whole. But the history records that they chose to ignore him. So God modified or changed the details of his rescue program. So now he called one man, Abraham, so that he could build an entire nation from him. Now, he chose Abraham because he had a very important job for this nation that would come from Abraham. So take a look at this diagram in the middle of page 8 here. This is the job that uh, God had for Abraham and his descendants. The two main things were to preserve his history and truth in the form of scriptures and to share this with all people. So follow along in this diagram here. So culture was being paganized. They were moving away from God. So God called Abraham to separate from the evil culture. And so with Abraham and his descendants, God says, I'm going to build a counterculture with your family. I'm going to teach you, Abraham, about myself. You're going to learn about me. You and your descendants will learn about my history, learn about my truth. And I want you to write down what I tell you to write down. So God is going to preserve his word, his history and truth in the form of 
scripture, a written record. So no more just oral, but now written. And they weren't supposed to just keep this for themselves. God had a reason for choosing Abraham and his descendants. He wanted them to bring back this information about him to the rest of the world. So Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the whole world by sharing God's history and truth with the rest of the people so that they could be saved from evil and sin. In other words, God chose them to be missionaries to the rest of the world. So God chose Abraham and his descendants for a purpose. Now, when he approached Abraham, he promised him three things. So look at the bottom of the page there. Number one, he promised him land, real estate, actual dirt on the ground, that God would give him physical land as his possession forever. It will belong to him and his family. That's the first promise. The second promise is about descendants. God promised that Abraham would have many descendants and that they would always survive as a people group. So think about it. next time you look at the Old Testament, you look at a whole long list of different people groups like Hittites, Hivites, Jebusites, Girgashites. You may ask, where are these people now? What has happened to them? They're gone. They're gone. But Abraham's descendants survive as a people group because of God's promise to him. And then the third promise that God gave him was that through Abraham's family will come a worldwide blessing. This blessing will flow from his family to the entire world. So God wasn't choosing him just because he liked them, but because he had a mission for Abraham and his descendants. And so when God made these promises to Abraham, Abraham's response was, he believes God's promises. So over on page 9, so after this interaction here, God made another unconditional contract, another covenant here. So look at the diagram there on the right-hand side of page 9. God made a contract between him on one hand and with Abraham and his descendants. So those are the parties to this covenant. Earlier, we saw with the covenant there, Noah's for the whole world, for everyone. But now here, it's just with Abraham and his descendants. And God guaranteed that he was going to keep his promises of land, descendants, and the worldwide blessing. So God was going to do this. So God was so serious about this promise that he actually performed a signing ceremony that involved halved animals. So as you recall, you might recall that God passed through these halved animals in the form of a smoking uh, fire pot and a flaming torch. Now what was God doing? God was putting a curse on himself, saying that he would be like these half animals if he did not keep the promises that he made to Abraham. So this was unconditional for Abraham. He didn't have to do anything good or bad to receive these promises because God himself was going to fulfill it. God was not going to break his promise to Abraham. So we call this an unconditional covenant because there were no conditions placed on Abraham. Now, at this point, some people will say, hey, why is the God of the Bible so unfair? He chose Abraham and made Abraham all these promises. Why did he do that to everyone else? But here's where understanding where we are in biblical timeline is important. Previously, God had communicated with the whole world directly, but we see that both before the flood and after the flood, people chose to reject God. So it wasn't as if God started off with that. God actually isn't playing favorites with Abraham. 
God chose Abraham because, by and large, the majority of people had already chosen to reject him, and they are not going to be responsible for carrying out God's mission of making God's history and truth of Himself known to the world. So God decided He's going to reach the world in another way. He's going to work through one man and his family to provide salvation to the whole world. Now, with Abraham, we'll see that wow, his his life is like an adventure story because everything that he goes through, you know, addresses or attacks or threatens one of the three promises that God made of land, descendants, or worldwide blessing. Okay, so what we see is that. Abraham was living in in the land that God had given him, but later on, later on in his grandson's generation, a great famine came into the land, and so God led the people out of that land and into the land of Egypt where there was food. Okay, now while in Egypt, this group of people, Abraham's grandson and his family, became. From seventy people into two and a half million people, and so they lived there for around four hundred years. But we know that the Egyptians abused them. So after that, God let them out. Now, if you take a look at the bottom diagram of in page nine, you're gonna get very familiar with this because you know we're gonna start building this out right until eternity future, so to speak. But here, what we want to do is give you an overview of the next section that we're gonna talk about. Now, on the left-hand side, first, you see that you know after the flood, people organized themselves to build the Tower of Babel. They were basically saying, "Nope, we're ignoring God. We're going to reach the heavens by ourselves. We want to live life independent from this God. Don't want Him to interfere with us at all." So, what were they doing? Take a look at the title on the left-hand side. They were building the pagan kingdom of man, where this kingdom is based on works. Where the idea is that no, we're going to save ourselves, mankind. We're going to save ourselves through our own ideas. The reality is what we make up, you know. And however we live is what we make up. We are the ultimate authorities. No God involved in our lives. Now, in biblical history, we're also going to see other examples of people living with this mindset. Other examples of this kingdom of men. So here also, you will see that this is represented by Egypt. As well as Canaan, as well as Canaan here. Now, what we see on the right-hand side, though, is that against this culture, this pagan anti-God culture, God calls Abraham. God calls Abraham. Now, what was God doing? God was actually building what we'll call a counterculture, a kingdom of God that is based on His grace, where God says, "I'm going to save you." You can't save yourself. You're not the ultimate authority. I'm gonna save you. And what did God do with Abraham? God chose not just him, but his descendants. So God chose the people of Israel, and we see that God saved them out of Egypt, you know, and brought them to live in the Promised Land later, you know. But coming out of Egypt, God built up. It's a time of nation building. God built up the nation of Israel. They were just just a nation of slaves before in Egypt, but God built them up into a nation, and then God told them, "All right, the conquest and settlement period. You're going to move into the land that I God had given to Abraham. They were going to resettle in a promised land, but the problem is that the promised land was now occupied by by evil people groups. So God moved them into the promised land, 
And then while they were in the promised land, went through a period of the kings in Israel. They asked for kings. And so we go through a period of a unified kingdom, all 12 tribes together, and then a divided kingdom. And then what we see is that on the left-hand side, Israel and Judah turn against God. So in the diagram, you see that while starting out white, they start to turn gray. Because even within the counterculture that God intended to build, even within the people of God, they started to become paganized. They started to become unbelievers. Now, when we use the word paganized, by the way, take note that all we mean with the word paganized is that this is a non, non-God focus, okay? Non-Christian worldview. Mm, unbiblical worldview. Okay, when we use the word paganized, we don't... We don't mean like, you know... A guy running in the jungle, waving sticks. No, no, no. We just mean just, non-biblical worldview. Okay, so non-biblical worldview. So Israel and Judah turn against God, leaving very few believers. And then we come to the time of the exile, the red bar there, where the visible kingdom of God ended. Now on the left-hand side, when that happened, you know, while all the time that God was working with Israel, God had a restraining hand on a pagan kingdom of man, with, with the event of the exile, God lifted his hand of restraint and therefore allowing the rise of the kingdom of men. Now, this is a very quick overview. We're going to go into some details, starting from what happened in Egypt. So if you turn with us to page 10. Mm, so Exodus there. So Egypt is a very good example of how man perverted the fourth divine institution of civil authority and then it made the government all-powerful. So the, the people dependent on their godlike government for everything. This is talking about Egypt here. In fact, they worshipped Pharaoh as God and he provided them with welfare, with order, with meaning in life. So it was a nation run totally on man's ideas and Israel was within that nation. And when the Israelites cried out to God because of the immense suffering they were going through as slaves, God raised Moses to lead the people out. So through Moses, God gave Pharaoh information about himself. So God revealed himself to Pharaoh through Moses speaking. And he gave Pharaoh the opportunity to turn away from his anti-God life. But Pharaoh continually rejected God again and again. So through a series of 10 very disastrous plagues that turned Egypt from a superpower to a devastated nation, God proved that he alone is God, not Pharaoh, not Pharaoh's magicians, not the false idols that they worship. Now, of the 10 disastrous plague judgments, God also used the 10th one, the 10th plague, to teach people more about how he would save the world. So God never wastes a historical event. Even when he's interacting with the people of time, he's putting in place lessons for us to learn. So with that 10th plague, the, the plague was every firstborn in the family would die unless the family followed God's instructions to kill a lamb and then dab the door frame and lintel with the house with the lamb's blood. Then only if they did that, then the lamb, with the firstborn rather, who was hiding within the house would live when the angel of death passed over. So this event here, the Passover, as it's become known, reinforces the same lessons that God had taught with the flood. So number one, there is a time of grace before judgment. Two, it's very clear who will be saved and who will be judged. 
There's no guessing here. Those within the house with the blood on the door frames would be safe. The other firstborns would not. So it's very clear. Number three, there was only one way to be saved. Number four, nature and the world of Egypt changed. And even the spirit beings were involved in this. And number five, a person could only be saved if they trusted God. If they trusted God. So the same five lessons here about salvation are being taught. So God used the Exodus particularly, particularly the Passover, to teach about blood atonement. That's a technical word. The atonement literally just means a covering, a blood covering. God showed how he was willing to accept the death of an innocent substitute who is not under the death penalty in place of the person who is under the death curse. So what we're going to notice as we're going to spend quite a lot of time in the Old Testament, but what we're going to notice is this. Right after the fall in Genesis 3, God promised a rescue, but he didn't give details of what this rescue would look like, who was the promised rescuer and all that. But in the pages of the Old Testament, God actually gave more and more details of who the Messiah, who the Savior is. And one of the things that he taught in the time of the Exodus is how this person would rescue. God used the 10th plague to say he is willing to accept the death of a sufficient substitute, a substitute in place of the guilty. So he's starting to put in place, ah, teaching moments. It's like, okay, how is this person going to be the rescuer? So here we realize that God is willing to accept a substitute. So that's the event of the Exodus. Mm. Now, before we move on, are you guys doing okay? <laughs> okay. Like we, we keep apologizing in the first class in this overview because it is a monologue. Okay. So if your head is exploding, we understand, but it's not going to be like this yeah. starting yeah. next week. This is still the tour brochure, so to speak. We're just giving you a coverage of what the series would be like. Okay. So after the Exodus, God does something interesting. Mm. So the next event there, bottom of page 10, the law. So we see that God supernaturally and miraculously led the Israelites out of Egypt led by his visible presence in the form of a tower of cloud by day and a tower of fire by night. Now, while in the desert, God starts his program of nation building. Before that, they were just slaves in Egypt. And now they are free from Egypt. God starts to mold them into a nation. So he tells the Israelites what his relationship with them would be. He's going to be the father and Israel would be his son. So he defines their relationship. It's not master and servant. It's not boss and worker. It's not contractor and contracted staff. It's father and son. So he gave them the law to show them what this relationship would be like, how they would relate to him and how they would relate to each other. And so God's law is very personal. He taught them how they could live well. And he told them, your motive for obeying the law, it will be gratitude towards me for all that I have done for you. He keeps reminding them, I am the God who rescued you out of Egypt. And so because of that, then they will in turn obey him out of gratitude. So he didn't want the Israelites to just coldly or mechanically follow a set of rules that he gave them. Rather, 
He wanted their obedience to come out of a heart of love and gratitude towards him. And we see that the people agreed to follow his law. So at this point, we see God make yet another contract. So this is the third contract we're going to observe today. And you can see the little icon there, the bottom of page 10. But this time, the contract is between Israel and God, but it's also different from the earlier two that we saw. This one is conditional. So the Noahic contract we saw earlier and the Abrahamic were unconditional. The people involved in that contract did not have to perform to a certain standard or did not have to perform certain actions in order for God to fulfill the terms that he promised. So that's those two. But this one here, the one he signed with Israel, often known as the Mosaic contract because Moses was the one writing it down, was conditional. So God had responsibilities, and but the Israelites also had responsibilities to fulfill. So take a look at page 11 now. So if the Israelites obeyed God's law, then he says, okay, then I will bless you with economic prosperity. I'll bless you with good weather. I'll bless you with cooperative nature. So your farming will be successful. I'll bless you with military success, with peace, with population growth, and my continued presence, my visible presence will be with you. Just looking at these series of promised blessings, you can see that, oh, I mean, when we enter the contract, can we promise the other party, I promise you good weather. <laughs> I promise you excellent harvest. I promise you your family will grow. You get lots of babies. You, I you, guarantee you have lots of yeah, babies. Yeah, you see there's a problem here, right? Because who, which human can promise that? But God can. He can do it. And you, we will see that all these promises are not one by one. They are a package deal. These are all supernatural promises that no human being can con assure. Mm. And they are a package deal. So that's on God's end, what He promised then. But then on the other hand, the Israelites had obligations to obey God's law. Now, if they disobeyed, oh, there'd be penalties. God would discipline them as a father would. Now, there are going to be five levels of discipline. But we see that unlike the blessings which are a package deal, the discipline are five stages, one by one by one. God doesn't just jump to the most severe stage. He goes one step at a time. But each subsequent stage is worse than the one before. But the purpose of the discipline was actually to get them to turn from being wicked to turn back to God and live right in front of Him. So what we recognize here is that God is very slow to punish. He wants to give the people opportunity upon opportunity to change their mind about how they're living. But the, these five levels of discipline, one worse than the next, you know, are also supernatural. Mm. So here are the levels of discipline. There's physical and psychological illness and disease. There's going to be military defeat. God will cause them to lose their battles. Economic disaster, famine, death of children, death of their livestock, you know, general population decrease, starvation, cannibalism, death, exile, and God's visible presence removes from them. So these are the stages of discipline that God would put on them if the people fail to repent. <coughs> So as we see here, you know, we say, oh, okay, there's uh, 
the military defeat. What does that mean? So we see that the discipline that God brings upon Israel involves other nations as well. So for example, if God declared, you're going to suffer military defeat, that implies that someone is going to invade and that Israel is going to lose. So another nation is involved in this discipline here. So what this shows is that God is in charge, not just of Israel, but he's in charge of every nation on the earth. And when God declared that Israel are blessing you with good weather because of your obedience, well, the other nations around will also benefit from that. Or if he cursed them with famine or sickness, the other nations will be affected. But it also shows that God is in charge of weather, climate, and of nature. He can use this to bless or to curse as well. So this is a very powerful God. His, his fine control of nature and his detailed control of human events demonstrates that he didn't just create the world and then go off on a holiday or sit back in his armchair and just watch things happen without interference. No, he is intimately involved in the creation that he made. He is completely in charge of the world. So some people have the idea, as what Amos has said, that, people, that God just created the world and sit back and kind of watch us, like, you know, watch little toys being played and all that. That's not who the God of the Bible is. He's very personal, he's very relational, and he intimately is involved in world history. But now, we've talked about three contracts already. The Noahic contract, Abrahamic contract, and Mosaic contract. Now, as Amos had said, this one is different. The Mosaic contract is different in that this is conditional. Israel had obligations to fulfill. Now, how would we know what are the behaviors of the parties of this Mosaic contract? How did Israel behave? How did God behave? Do we know if either party kept their side of the contract? Actually, God made sure that there's a re reporting uh, done to make sure that it's being recorded, what did God do? What did Israel do? Do you know that you have access to this recording? It's called the Old Testament. This record of how God behaved and how Israel behaved is in the Old Testament. Now, the word testament has another name as well. It means contract. It also can be called the old contract. It has yet another name. It can also be cov called covenant. So Old Testament, Old Contract, Old Covenant, they all mean the same thing. Why is it necessary? Because God made a legal contract. When you have a legal contract, you need to have a way to verify how did the parties of the contract behave? Did they keep the contract or not? Now, this is one reason why it's critical that the Bible contains no errors. If you have a legal contract and the person reporting on the behavior of the parties just lies his way through it, then it's a useless document. It's a useless document. Nobody should even bother looking at it. But the Bible, the Old Testament, is a record of how did Israel and God behave with regards to the Mosaic contract. And because this is such a formal and serious contract, and you're familiar that every contract would need witnesses, Okay, all right, we got witnesses to say that, yes, you both signed it or whatever it may be. You know, and God also put in place three witnesses. Today, we're going to talk about two of them. The first witness that God put in place is heaven and earth. Now, 
for those of you who are very familiar, particularly with the books of the prophets, you could have noticed that the prophets often say, oh, heaven and earth, or oh, earth, 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 look at this, or look at that. You know, heaven and earth in the Bible refer to, the heavens referring to spirit beings, earth referring to humans. Because spirit beings can observe how is God behaving with regards to the Mosaic contract? How is Israel behaving? Now, earth, you know, humans are what represents earth, and humans can also read the record. As they read the record, they say, oh, Israel, why did you do this here? That's breaking God's law. So both heavens and earth are witnesses to see if Israel has kept the side of the contract or not. But God also put in place another witness, Israel's national anthem. Now, Deuteronomy 32 contains Israel's national anthem. Now, I don't mean the national anthem of modern-day Israel, okay? Because some of you might play the anthem or read the lyrics and say it's not the same. We're not talking about that. We are in this point in biblical history where God told Moses, now this is a song you're going to teach to the people and they're going to sing it regularly. But this national anthem that God gave is unlike any national anthem that we have. Many of our countries have national anthems that say, oh, you know, four, four short years ago, you know, our forefathers came here and built this beautiful land and so on and so forth. The national anthem that God told Moses to teach the people was actually prophetic in nature. You know, God was telling the people, listen, this is how you're going to behave. And I'm warning you, this is how you're going to behave. But even though they knew about with the warning, they nevertheless still chose to rebel against God. So God did put in place witnesses. So these are two of them. But God also put in place prosecuting attorneys. Now, in any formal contract, you need a way, you know, to punish or discipline the ones who breaks the contract, like a policeman or like a lawyer. So God put in place lawyers or his prosecuting attorneys, and they're called the prophets. In the Bible, there are more than 133 named prophets, and 16 of them are women. Now, what's their job? Their job have several aspects of their job. One of the jobs that God has given these prophets is to write down biblical history, write down God's perspective of what's going on. You know, the Bible tells us that God doesn't do anything in biblical history without telling the prophets, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm punishing this nation. Oh, this is what I'm doing. So God actually tells the prophets that and the prophets record it down so that people won't make up things. When we read secular history, we read about what people think is happening. But no, God wants us to know real history, what is actually happening. So he tells the prophets, write this down. This time I'm doing this to Assyria. This time I'm doing this to Babylon or whatever it may be. Another job that the prophets have is to teach the people about God and to also give them God's promises and prophecies about the future. And also to encourage the people, people, turn away from your sins, obey God. But one of the critical roles that they have is as prosecuting attorney. Okay, so what do they do? They will announce to the people, hey, you broke this law. Repent. If you don't repent, God is going to send the first stage of punishment, the first stage of discipline. What? You still won't repent? Okay, the first stage of discipline will come. Okay, people, now change your mind. Because if you don't change your mind, then God is going to send the second stage. 
So as a prosecuting attorney, they're going to announce the discipline, but they're also going to encourage repentance. Now, when we read the 17 books of prophets in the Old Testament, we actually see, and we will do this with you, that they actually use legal language. And they keep referring back to the Mosaic contract. They re keep referring back, you broke this law, you broke that law. You know, and they will also call on the witnesses to say, see how Israel has behaved. So this is what God did with them in the desert when giving them the law at a time of nation building. But at this time period, God also gave them instructions for temple worship. He gave them their national holidays, their feasts and festivals. So they were, God was actually building them into a people group. Now, after the time in the desert, God says, all right, we've moved out of Egypt now, and I'm going to move you into the land that I've promised to give to Abraham. So God was actually going to lead them on a short route to take possession of what he had promised Abraham, the promised land that Abraham's family had actually left earlier to survive the famine. But we see that the people were ungrateful. They were rebellious and they were disobedient. They didn't really have a good understanding of who God really is. So God caused them to wander in the desert for 40 years. And it was during this period that God taught them more about himself. So when this 40-year period is over, then he gave them instructions for moving into the promised land. Now the land really belonged to them. It was theirs, but they were not in possession of it. So what does this mean? It's kind of like if we own the house, the title deed is ours, but there are renters living in it at the moment. So we have ownership, while we are not in possession of the house. So God told the Israelites similarly, now the land is already yours. Now I want you to go take possession of it. So then he told them, you need to fight some battles to clear the land. And he will go ahead of them and win the battles for them. So all that they needed to do really was to obey his instructions carefully. So he actually told them there are two categories of war that I want you to be aware of. So number one and number two there on page 12. So for warfare with people who live far away, it means beyond the borders of the land that God gave them, they would actually start by offering terms of peace. If there was a conflict situation with a nation far away, this is how they were to begin, negotiate. But however, the rules for warfare with the Canaanites who lived in the promised land were different, different. They were not to offer them peace, but God says you are to totally destroy them, every last one of them. Now, regarding this point in Israel's history, critics of the Bible go, yeah, you see, you see, the God of the Bible is one who authorizes genocide. He has racial discrimination. He's intolerant. He rejects peaceful coexistence. How can he ask the Israelites to just kill all the people there in the land? Even as faithful believers, sometimes we look at it like, oh, what is going on? And we end up trying to avoid the topic. We skip over those passages or we start thinking badly of God. He actually might be a little insane. He might be evil or fanatic to ask for this, to not want peace, to reject that. But what God was actually doing, he was teaching some very sobering lessons during this conquest period. So first, God gives again and again, a grace, time of grace before judgment. Now the Canaanites were not a good, innocent people, not at all. Rather, they are brutal, 
wicked and aggressive people who worshipped all kinds of man-made idols. They engaged in, with demons in witchcraft. They engaged in child sacrifice. They would, they would actually kill their own babies and sacrifice to their gods. They practiced incest. They practiced bestiality as well. Now, God had actually given them hundreds of years to repent from this behavior, but they did not. So their sin reached such a grotesque level that God ended the grace period. They were, they went beyond the limits of grace that he was willing to tolerate. So just as we saw in God's judgment at the flood and at the exodus, he had used nature as a tool of judgment. So that was the flood, that was the exodus. But this time, his tool of judgment against the wicked people who had gone beyond the limits of his grace was a people group. So rather than using nature to judge an evil people group, he now used another people group, and they were the Israelites, as God's tool of discipline, God's tool of judgment. However, whichever choice he uses for judgment, one truth is clear. He always gives people a time of grace. But after the, the grace period has ended, judgment will come because the righteous God, he has to deal with evil. Second thing we'll notice here when we study the conquest period is that God is not racist. Now, have you ever read the book of Ruth and wondered, what's it doing in the Bible? There's not much going on except this kind of a semi-romance story. Floating. What is going on? It kind of sticks out among all the history books there. But it's very important book here because it shows how God rescues people. Now, Ruth and another lady will look at Rahab. They are not Israelites. They are Gentiles who live in the time of the conquest. And in fact, Rahab herself is part of the Canaanite group who was supposed to be destroyed. But their stories are there in the Bible to show that God rescues anyone who puts their faith in Him. So without the histories of these two women, we could accuse God of being playing favorite. Yeah, you only you only show favor to Israel. But no, with the with the accounts of Ruth and Rahab, we see that God desires for everyone to be saved, including Gentiles. So we see you know, that the separator is not ethnicity, it's not race, it's not wealth, it's not background, it's faith in Him. Now, we're going to go through all that. I'm going to go through even hard questions. When we go through the series, you know, there are a lot of, uh, every lesson has these boxes whereby we address criticisms against God, criticisms against the Bible, and this is one of them that we're going to address. When people say the God of the God that you have in your Bible is so wicked, we're going to address that because God gives us understanding of what He's doing. Mm. Now, the third thing we will see during this conquest period is that this holy war that God is asking Israel to do is a warning picture, a foreshadow of final judgment. Is the conquest period quite frightening? Yes, and God means it to be that way. Because it's a warning picture that would drive believers to want to share the good news of salvation with as many people as possible. Because God is serious about removing evil. Now people like to say, hey, if your God is a God of love, how can he allow so much evil, pain, injustice and suffering in the world today? 
But this historical account here shows that God will not allow evil and suffering to go on indefinitely. He's going to put an end to evil, including evil people. So right now, you know, as it is in, in this uh, account, there is a period of grace. So right now, we are also living in a period of grace, but there's certain judgment coming. And when that time comes, when God ends evil, there's no second chance. The final judgment is here. So God is allowing evil to go on right now only because he's allowing grace to go on right now. But just as it was in the time of the conquest, there will come a time of final judgment. So that, that is, the, in summary, the, one of the lessons that we see that God is showing. So people, people cannot claim that, hey, we never knew that there will be final judgment. Never knew this. Because God puts, puts the warning in the Bible. Now, during this time of the conquest, also, we see that God is teaching more about himself, his character, and how he relates to people. When he was in the desert with uh, uh, the people at the base of Mount Sinai, God gave them the law. That was kind of like textbook, textbook teaching. He gave them the theory, so to speak. But we know that, you know, learning from books is very different than learning from actually everyday life and living it out. So during the time of the conquest, God also taught very hard lessons about how he was going to sanctify or spiritually grow the people. God was going to make them have to make daily decisions. How are they going to live? So God was going to bring them through a time of practical or object lessons. So at first, in the desert came the theory, the law, you know, the textbook learning. But now, the time of the conquest is a time of, okay, how are you actually going to live? What are the decisions you're going to make? So through the time of the conquest where they won some battles, they lost some battles, you know, depending on how they behave, depending on their loyalty to God, God is going to show that people, I want your heart. I don't just want outward actions, I want your heart. Now, we're going to see that the people did settle into the promised land, but after settling down came a time of prosperity. They were so prosperous that the Bible tells us they became fat and unruly. They were so comfortable with the happy lives that they have set up, they started ignoring God. And the Bible tells us that they started to do whatever was right in their own eyes. Basically, they made themselves the ultimate authority. Remember, God is saying that don't make yourself the ultimate authority. That's the way of the pagan kingdom of man. But now God's own people, they decided what is truth? I make up what is truth. What is right and wrong? I determine what's right and wrong. The Bible tells us that's how the people started to live. Instead of choosing God's way, they chose man's way. So the people became paganized. But God was not done with them. You know, when God would send a punishment to wake them up and to cause them to repent, they'll cry out to God, God, help us, help us. And God would help them. How? God would send a military leader, a political leader, so to speak, to rescue them. Now, in the Bible, this military leader, political leader is called a judge. So the, the judge in the Bible is not holding a gavel and dung that, you know, saying, okay, I declare you guilty or not. No. The judge, the word judge in the Bible is referring to these political and military leaders. And we're going to see 15 judges. 
So people like Deborah, Samson, Gideon, you know, God sent one judge after another. But they would go into this, you know, spiral because they would repent and then God would, God would send a judge to them and all that. And then once they were saved from the horrible military defeat, they will once again sin. So they went through this whole spiral, downward spiral of rebellion, right from the first to the last judge. You know, and finally, they got so sick and tired of the chaos that they created for themselves. Why chaos? Because everyone was doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. You know, we'll see in the book of Judges that the people were creating a really depraved society for themselves. So they're sick and tired of this total freedom that they built for themselves. So what did they do? Instead of turning back to God in repentance, they said, God, we want a human king. We want to be just like all the other pagan nations around us. We want a king to lead us into battle. We don't want you, God. So they demanded a human king. Now, they were supposed to be a counterculture. They were not supposed to live like the pagan nations around them because God was wanting to use them to reach the other nations and tell them about him. But no, Israel went, no, we want to be exactly like the other nations around us. So God conceded. They said, okay, I'm going to give you a king, but I warn you, you're going to have to live life under the thumb of the king. He's going to demand taxes. He's going to demand you know, that your freedoms be limited. But the people still insisted, we want a king. You know, the way that God established relationship between himself and man is God is willing to interact with the genuine free will choices that he gave to mankind. The God of the Bible is not a heavenly computer programmer. He did not program, okay, person number one, you're going to behave in this way. Person number two, you're going to behave in this way. No, God is sovereign and his plans for history is never thwarted. Because he's so sovereign, he gives mankind free will. Mankind's free will will never thwart his purposes and plans. But nevertheless, it is true that mankind has genuine free will. But God reminded them, okay, now, even if they have a king, God has rules. The king is not to be the ultimate authority. Now, in the pagan nations around them, the king was the top dog. Okay, he's the final authority. So God told them, Israel, when you have a king, the king needs to answer to the priests and answer to the prophets. The king is not the final authority. So God established that. And God also said the king must hand copy God's laws for himself. Okay, hand copy God's laws for himself and read it daily. So God gave instructions for how the king was to live. The king also cannot accumulate much wealth, nor many wives. Now, the Bible says that King David was a model king. Even though he had spectacular sins, David was after God's own heart. David really wanted to please God so that even after he sinned, he clung to God. He clung to God. So God says he is the model king. In fact, David, as we'll see, is a picture of the future Messiah. But aside from David, the dynasty of kings, oh man, they were a disaster. Mm. For example, the first king, Saul, he was not concerned about God at all. His own heart was his. He only cared about his own ambition and reputation. And then further down, David's own son, Solomon, he actually introduced the worship of idols along with the worship of God. 
Then further down, King Jeroboam, he invented a completely false religion, worshipping idols, but keeping a few aspects of worship that looked like they're worshipping Yahweh. He used the same vocabulary, but the actual practices were completely anti-God and pagan. And then with King Ahab further down the line, there was no more pretense. Ahab actually changed the national religion of Israel to Baalism. So he kicked the Creator God out of Israel. Now earlier, the pagan nations of Babel and Egypt had abused the fourth divine institution of civil government. They used it to, to go against God. Now instead of limiting evil, they became power-hungry and anti-God. They led the nations into sin. So now, Israel's leaders did not do any better. They did the same thing. They abused the authority of civil government and made the people turn away from God. So the whole nation became corrupted. Now, while David lived and ruled and set an example of what a model king should be like, he said he kind of foreshadowed what the Messiah would be like. The rest of the kings, many of them, were terrible and they were very anti-God. So God eventually ended the monarchy. So he brought in the final stage of punishment under the Mosaic law. So God follows the terms. And so the fifth level of punishment was exile, driving the people out of the land that he had given them. So second half of page 14, he used other nations to to do this punishment. So Assyria and Babylon, they carted Israel away. So Israel now no longer had its own land, no longer had its own freedom. They were now under the leadership of pagan nations. Now God had meant for an obedient Israel to be the superpower of the world. He tells them you're going to be the head and not the tail. He's going to demonstrate his character and how to live with him through Israel. So looking at Israel, people were supposed to learn how to interact with God. But now Israel becomes the subject of pagan governments because they had rebelled against God. And God's visible presence, which the Jewish people call the Shekinah glory, that Israel enjoyed since the Exodus, his presence was there at the temple, now left them entirely. So the prophet Ezekiel was the one who, who saw God's presence depart from the temple and leave via the Mount of Olives. You know, ever since God had saved them from Egypt, God's presence to them was visible. A tower of cloud, tower of fire, and a time at the Mount Sinai, tabernacle, temple. People could visibly see God's presence in the Shekinah glory. But now God's presence left. So Ezekiel saw it leaving. So at the same time, God took his restraining hand off of the kingdom of man. Now, this is a fascinating time in history. We're going to go through this with you because we're going to see that in a very short span of time, at the same time as the exile, when God lifted his hand of restraint, seven new world religions burst into the scene. Now, these new world religions at a point in time, many of them are still here today. But why? Why of all world history, suddenly seven major world religions burst up? Well, God lifted his hand of restraint. But during this time, God did not leave his beaten down people, poor Israel, without hope. He did two things. God used an exiled Jew, Daniel, to teach the people, okay, how are they now going to live 
under a pagan anti-God government. Now, when we get to the lessons in Daniel, we're going to find this very helpful because all of us live with, uh, under a secular government. We don't live under Christian governments. How are we supposed to live if they have anti-God laws? Well, the book of Daniel gives us very good principles of how we are to live. You know, so that's what we're going to do then. But God also, at this point in history, started something very helpful, apocalyptic writings. God starts to reveal to the people, hey, this is how history will end. This is how the future will look like. He did that so that they would have hope. You know, sometimes when we're reading through a novel that is really pretty miserable, some people would like to read the last page first. Okay, is it a happy ending or not? Only if it's a happy ending, then we'll go, okay, okay, I can, I can tolerate all these terrible stories in the middle because I know it's going to end well. You know, God knows that telling a good ending would help his people endure and persevere, even during the tough times. So God started apocalyptic writings at this time period to help the suffering Jews endure, to tell them that no, the kingdom of man seems like they're winning now, but that's not reality. You know, God, God tells the Jews, this is how it will end. So he gives assurance. He tells them everything is in his control. But God also did something else. If you turn with me to page 15, God made another contract with Israel. It's called the new contract or the new covenant. All throughout Israel's history, and the Old Testament is focused on Israel. All throughout Israel's history, we see that they have never been able to consistently obey God. Generation after generation, hundreds over hundreds of years, they have rebelled against God. But God says, you know what? I'm going to do something for you that you've never been able to do for yourself, Israel. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to give you a new spirit and I am going to move you back into your land. So God told Israel, there's hope for you. I'm going to do something for you that you could not do for yourself. So after 70 years in exile, God actually worked behind the scenes again to cause the Persian government, which was in power at that time, to allow some of the Jews to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city and the city wall. But other Jews, like for example, Esther, they remain dispersed. Many Jews did not return home, but a remnant returned. So it's during this time period that God caused the Old Testament to be completed, to finish writing of the Old Testament here. So at the close of the Old Testament period, these beaten down Jews still had a lot to look forward to. They were not without hope. So for example, they were waiting for God to fulfill the promise they had made in a covenant with Abraham about land, about descendants, and about a worldwide blessing that will flow out from them. Now, incidentally, you know, when you read parts of the Old Testament, you say, oh my goodness. For example, in your Bible reading plan, you may come across a whole series of chapters where God describes, okay, Issachar, you get the land from this border to this river to this hill to this town. And then for chapters and chapters, it goes on like that. And we get kind of cross-eyed wondering what is going on. Actually, these are fascinating details. They're literally like the land title deed of the real estate that he had promised to Abraham. And God is describing tribe by tribe, I'm giving you back this land. Here are your exact boundaries. 
So that's very fascinating. So they were waiting for God to fulfill the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. They were also waiting for God to send the promised one, the Messiah, or what I call the anointed one, to save them. And they were also expecting God to fulfill the promises about the coming kingdom that God had revealed through the prophets. So they were waiting for that time when Israel would be the superpower of the world and not this beaten down uh, group of people. God says he's going to rule the kingdom from Jerusalem. God says that King David will be back on his throne, also ruling. And because of this, there will be worldwide peace and prosperity. And so the Jewish people are looking forward to this time of the coming kingdom. So we end off the Old Testament. We're going to share with you two lessons on what was on the Jewish mind. Because understanding that at the close of the Old Testament will help us understand the New Testament far better. And then, okay, so, so far we've finished the Old Testament. Are you guys still alive with us? <laughs> okay. All right. Now, then in the New Testament, what we see is this. So at the correct timing, God the Son came down to earth as a human baby. So he was born the son of a virgin, just as God had prophesied all those years ago, even beginning in Genesis. And so his name when he was born was Jesus. And his virgin birth is actually very significant because it ensures that Jesus was born without inheriting Adam's corrupted sin nature. So both his human mother, Mary, and his adoptive father, Joseph, they were born, they were from the family line of David. So he, this Jesus, was therefore from the line of King David, and he was therefore eligible to sit on David's throne. So Jesus was fully human, but without sin. And the Bible declares that he is the second or the last Adam. The title is very significant. We're going to explore why he's called the second Adam. We'll give you a, kind of a spoiler here. He came to accomplish what the first Adam failed to do, which is to exercise responsible dominion over all the earth. We're going to see that the job that God gave the first Adam and which he failed at, this second Adam, okay, or the second man, as the Bible calls him, will succeed. You know, this Messiah, Jesus, as a God-man, will be the first, he will be representative of all the human race and he will accomplish what God had wanted him to do. So Jesus, being fully God on earth, he humbled himself, but he did two things that are significant. Firstly, he perfectly fulfilled the Mosaic contract that people were not able to do. National Israel is never able to fully fulfill that. So he lived righteous life according to the law. And second thing, remember God had said that he was willing to accept a substitute in a place of the guilty. So Jesus did two things. He lived a perfect life and he credited that perfect life to mankind. And he also died as a sufficient substitute you know, for man. So he died the death that mankind was supposed to die. But we see here that when Jesus came, we learned something fascinating. Because at this point in world history, the Jews had been exiled, thrown out of their land, and they were yearning to be an independent Jewish nation once again. They wanted the land in the Middle East. They wanted Jerusalem. They wanted their throne room in, in Jerusalem. They wanted their own king to be ruling from Jerusalem. 
So they were waiting for when, Lord, when will we have our own independence and our own king again? So when Jesus came, Jesus actually talked about this, this time, this kingdom of God, whereby they can be independent again. But there was one criteria. The Jews as national Israel had to accept him. And we're going to see that aside from few Jews that believed in him, his disciples and all that, national Israel, both the leadership as well as the citizens, rejected him. They didn't want, they didn't want him to be their Messiah. So because of that, you, we will see that Jesus, after the first few chapters in the gospel, his vocabulary starts to change. He starts speaking about a time that he's going to be killed. And so what we see is that Jesus also, at this point in time, starts to talk about something that the Old Testament never talked about. Jesus starts to teach the people what the church age would look like. Now, the Old Testament never mentioned the church. The Old Testament never mentioned Christians, so to speak, in this time period. The Old Testament was very focused on the time of Israel. But Jesus starts to talk about a new age. Now, after that, Jesus went to the cross. So he willingly goes to the cross and he dies for mankind. So at the cross, then, we clearly understand how God saves people. And we see that at the cross, the same lessons that we saw at the global flood and also at the exodus are also true of the cross. For example, number one, there's a time of grace before judgment. Two, it's very clear who is saved and who will be judged. Number three, there's only one way to be saved. Number four, the invisible spirit world is forever changed when Jesus defeated Satan's power, including his power over death. And number five, a person can only be saved if they trust in God. So Jesus' death then is the full, final, and complete payment for the sins of all mankind. So his death satisfies God's justice and restitution requirements. We're going to explore what does God's justice requires. Not a man definition, but God's definition of justice. And we can see why God's justice demands this payment on the cross. And so more significantly, Jesus' resurrection is physical proof about God's offer and promise of forgiveness. And in fact, Jesus' resurrection body is a piece of the eternal state. Just imagine the Father took a piece of the eternal state and broke it off and planted it into human history. He let us see what the eternal state looks like with resurrection immortal bodies. So he's showing us advanced information of what the eternity would be like through Jesus' resurrection. And then now the next event here, Jesus then tells his disciples what they needed to do and what to expect after he ascends to heaven and he begins the next phase of history. So he told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so at the festival known as Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells believers here. Now because the majority of the Jews rejected the Messiah, rejected uh, what he came to do for them, the new covenant that God promised them, the, the Jews that is, now causes unexpected blessings for the Gentiles who are actually not parties to the covenant. 
So God also gave the Gentiles a kind of mini Pentecost experience with Cornelius, that centurion, and his family. So that was the moment when Jesus' Jewish disciples realized that, hey, God is offering Jesus' salvation work on the cross to non-Jews. When we study that, you will see how surprised they are that this event happens. So now the church age would include both Jewish and Gentile believers together as one body. So this word body you see is New Testament vocabulary that does not exist in the Old Testament. So this is an unexpected development because as Jen mentioned, the Old Testament prophets were not told in advance about the nature of the church. So when we study the book of Acts, we will see, hey, the disciples actually took some time to understand what God was doing. But once they accepted this, once they realized what was happening, then they started moving out across the world to make disciples from every nation, just as Jesus had instructed them. So this is the age that we are living in. So the Bible doesn't stop at the church age. Now, the New Testament talks a lot about the church age. But again, just as God wanted, wanted the Old Testament Jews to know how the future is, how it ends, God also gives us a lot of information about how this world will end. So on page 17 now, final judgment, history will work out according to God's plan. In fact, he, he, he puts in a lot of prophecies and then he fulfills a lot of it in the Bible to show us that if he can be trusted with older prophecies, he can be trusted with what he tells us about the future. So what will happen is this. The church age will end. He will recall the church to heaven and both individual Jews and individual Gentiles who have put their faith in Christ for salvation, they will be judged. We will all be judged at a place called the Bema. Now the Bema has a name, the judgment seat of Christ. This judgment seat of Christ is only for believers. It's only for believers. So nobody else would be at this judgment seat of Christ. Now, there, believers will be judged for how they have lived their lives as believers. Again, God will reward believers for how they live their lives or believers will lose their rewards for living poorly as believers. Now, some people have the idea that as Christians, you know, at the end of our lives, it's like a communist state. Okay, in heaven, everybody gets the same goodie bag. Everybody gets the same uh, place to live in. That's not what the Bible describes. The Bible describes that there are differences. From one Christian to the next, there are differences based on the way that we have chosen to live our lives now. So we'll also be discussing in a series, how are we going to prepare for this performance review at the Bema that's only meant for believers? Now, after that event, you know, God's going to end the grace period for all humanity. Now, at that time, if we know what the time of the Exodus is like, just imagine the time of the Exodus on a global scale. You know, God is going to begin a series of worldwide judgments that are so severe. In fact, the Bible describes that it's so severe that at one point, 50% of the world's population will die. We have not seen that kind of, aside from the global flood, we've not seen that kind of numbers before in human history. So this period will be like the time of the conquest also. No second chances, you know, no negotiations. 
But at this point in time, something fascinating will happen. Because of God's promise to Israel, the Jews will actually come into national belief. They will actually nationally acknowledge Messiah. At this future point in time, national Israel will all be believers. Jesus will return physically to earth to usher in the physical kingdom of God. And as he promised, you know, he will reestablish Jerusalem. Now, at this future point in time, Jerusalem on this planet earth will be the capital of the world. Jesus will rule from there. And the resurrected King David will rule national Israel. Now, at this at the end of this period of time of the kingdom of God on earth, there will be one final judgment. Now, this final judgment is called the Great White Throne Judgment. God is going to resurrect all unbelievers from all of human history, from the first unbeliever in human history to the final unbeliever in human history. God will resurrect them, give them physical bodies, and they're going to stand before him in a very scary setting. Because the Bible describes that God would have already, at this point in time, gotten rid of this present heavens and earth. So what we're standing on right now, no longer here. It seems like they're going to be suspended somewhere. But God is going to face all unbelievers in all of human history and give them a guilty verdict. And he's going to send them all into quarantine and a lake of fire forever. So the Bible describes this is how God restores the normal the perfect, and then God will introduce an entirely new heavens and earth. Now, what we're going to see at this point in time, God ushers in the eternal state. And in this eternal state, this new heavens and earth, God's original plan for mankind, responsible dominion over what God has created, all that will be fulfilled. All that will be fulfilled. Now, some people have the idea that God's purpose for history is salvation. It's not. It's not. After saving us for eternal life, there is real life. There is real life. There's a whole lot more to happen. You know, so what we're going to see is that people will not just worship God, but people will be a reflection of the glory of God. The whole universe will reflect God's glory. Okay, how are you guys doing? <laughs> that is your 10 cent tour. Okay, that is your speed train. And, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's a long lesson. It's two hours. All our lessons are two hours. Otherwise, you'll be with us for five years or seven years. Okay, and that's why we give you notes. All right, because uh, we know that we know that it's going to be so helpful for you to also review the notes after each class, okay, as well as have it on hand uh, to for those of you who actually missed that class, have it on hand as you listen to the audio recording. Now, again, we call it the Tencent Tour because we didn't go through any scripture with you today. And you're going to find that we're going to be tr very intentional about not sharing our opinions. You're not going to hear our opinions. What we're going to do is we're going to share with you what Scripture says. Okay, and we're going to share with you coming out of Scripture, you know, what Scripture is saying to us and what we should believe. You should not believe anything that any Bible teacher, any pastor, or even us, what we tell you, if we cannot show you the Scripture and if we cannot show you how that Scripture ties to the rest of Scripture. 
We're not going to be going fishing in the Bible in this series. We're not going to be asking you to take a buffet approach to the Bible in this series. And this is a heads up and a warning. That's why this series is going to take about two years to finish. Okay, because this is not a casual series that you can kind of come into class with half your brain turned off. Okay, this series is going to be for serious Christians who really want to dig into God's word because we're going to show you that God is a good communicator. Sometimes when you speak to churchgoers, they have several accusations against God. They say that God, the Bible cannot be understood. Or I've been to church, been there, done that. The Bible doesn't have any answers for me. If you speak to people who have left the church, oftentimes they'll say things like that. God doesn't have answers. You know, everybody has an opinion about something. In the end, there's no clear answer. That's not what God is like. That's not who, how he has presented his Bible. The Bible is not for us to insert our own opinions. But, but if we just take five minutes of the Bible and we say, oh, your Bible has so many contradictions. Here, here, here. Our response would be, the problem is you've only taken five minutes of the Bible. But if we are diligent and we go through the Bible carefully, if we take seriously God's word, we'll see that God makes a lot of sense. And in fact, he ties everything together. So we're going to have a better understanding of any part of scripture, you know, when we consider it in the light of the whole of scripture. So that's what this series is about. And we hold on to God's word because in Psalm 119 verse 130, he says that he's revealed himself in such a way that even the simple can understand. So we don't need to have PhDs or, you know, you don't need to be rocket scientists to be able to understand his word. So that's, that's what this series is about. Now, if you turn with me to page 18, we have, we have three things that we want to accomplish. You know, we want to grow deeper in love and faith towards God. We're going to show through the scripture itself that God has a personality, has a personality. You know, for some of us, we treat God in a very arm's length way. Oh, you know, I need to follow this list of do's and don'ts. You know, God is to be feared, but you don't have a personal relationship with God. No, that's not who God is like. We're going to see that right from the first man and first woman, God is extremely relational. He reveals himself. He communicates. He wants a personal, deep and intimate and genuine relationship with each and every one of us. So that's who we're going to explore. He's not a bland, boring person. Okay, the second thing is we live in a very messy world. You know, some people have stopped reading the news because they just get depressed reading the news. You know, but we want to show that in the words of God, we can have confidence and hope and joy even in these times of messiness. And God does not want us to be running around like headless chickens, worried about the state of the world. Because he says, listen, I've told you how it's going to end. In fact, God tells you, I'm telling you how bad it's going to get. But even in the midst of all this, I assure you that you can have joy. You can have hope. So we want to take away the kind of hope and joy even in our daily lives. We don't want to be like the headless chickens. You know, running around, oh, pandemic here, oh, deaths here, oh, volcanic eruption here, oh, terminal illness here, and oh, where are you, God? No, we want our faith to stand strong amidst all this because God has told us what to expect. 
you know, and God has given us a good understanding of the biblical worldview. So what we're going to do throughout this series, we're going to present the biblical worldview. We're also going to present the unbelieving worldview, and we're intentionally going to clash it. In this series, we're going to be we're going to be discussing things that some people in class have said, "Wow, you know, you dare discuss this kind of controversial topic." Of course, we dare discuss it. If within church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't discuss these controversial, difficult topics, then where? Then where? No, we're going to discuss it in class together. Okay, and and we're gonna we're gonna find that we're not gonna be afraid of dealing with the hard topics. Okay, you know, at this point in time, you know, sometimes we ask any questions, but then it's kind of silly to ask any questions because there's so much that we still have to go through. So what we're going to go through right now is uh, just a bit of housekeeping. Now, our lessons are two hours long, and some of you might think that's really long. Are there any breaks? No, we've tried breaks before and people didn't come back, okay, for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. <laughs> and so what we'll share with you is this. If you need to snack, if you need to stand up, if you need to do push-ups on the floor, go right ahead. We're not, we're not going to be offended, okay? Uh, so feel free to do that. It's really okay. Uh, now, um, we are going to you know, plow right through the, the time. Um, what we are going to do is, even though it is 56 lessons, so to speak, we are going to go at your pace. That's why we tell you two years, around two years. Because while sometimes we are able to finish an entire deck of notes in one session, other times there are so many questions or you know uh, that we actually slow the pace down to address them. Okay, so we're going to go at the pace that the class wants to take. We don't want to just blow through the fifty-six lessons and in the end you're like, what happened? Okay, so we're going to go at your pace. Now this series has been built so that we don't end up reading the Bible, flipping here, flipping there, flipping here, flipping there, and end up with a lot of gaps and holes. So we cannot emphasize enough that if you happen to miss a lesson, please do catch up with the notes and with the audio recording. That's why we make them. <clears throat> okay. Now, some people will ask at this point in time, um, up to which point in time can you accept newcomers to class? Now, if you have anyone that you want to invite to class now, send. we're going to send you the audio recording after class. And we always send it out right after class. If you have anyone that you want to invite to class, please send them today's audio recording and forward them the notes. And if after sitting through the two hours, they're still sure they want to join us, you know, get them to email us. But as you can see, every week is going to be two hours up to a few weeks in it's going to be a challenge for people to catch up. So we do not recommend people joining uh, too many lessons in. Okay, so our first few lessons, and we have people catch up on 12 hours before, but it takes a very special person to do that. Okay, really, all right? We have had people do that, but we don't recommend that because it's a lot of content. What we do recommend you do is that you go through your notes again for yourself slowly. Some people do the notes also during uh, their quiet time to go through a bigger chunk of scripture. Now, within these lessons, now today is a not a representative lesson. Starting from next week, before next week's lesson, we're going to give you a reading list because 
you're not going to hear a monologue from us, okay? The reading list is alphabetical, but we're going to ask for your help to read the scripture. You know, and as we share, each lesson is about one quarter scripture. So we'll call on a person's name and you will unmute and then read the scripture and we'll thank you and then we'll go on. Okay, so we'll hear the different voices reading the scripture as we go along. Okay, so uh, it'll be helpful for you if some of you have registered with a different name from what you're coming on right now. And I think I see about five or six of you. We actually don't know who you are. Your names here don't match the names that you've given us. If you're one of them, uh, do let us know. And if you happen to join to today's class, but you actually haven't registered, please email us, okay? Yeah, because we, we're going to be sending out the notes and also the audio recording. So if we don't know who you are, you'll never, you'll never get the notes or audio recordings. And especially in the first module, we send out additional material. We, when we go through certain things in class, we will also send out articles and stuff that you will find helpful. So you do want to receive that from us. Now, homework. Oftentimes we're asked, is there written homework? Okay, is your, if you're from BSF, no, we don't have written homework like you do in BSF, okay? What you do have is pre-reading. So for instance, if you look at the bottom of page 18, at every bottom of every lesson, you'll see pre-reading. So your pre-reading for the next lesson is Genesis 1 and, and 2. Please do your pre-readings. Okay, we don't normally don't give an overly unreasonable sum of amount, but please do your pre-readings. Nevertheless, uh, after your pre-reading, we would encourage you to go through your notes again. Okay, so so you will see the information and content really builds up. So those are the two homework, so to speak, that you have. So there's no written homework. Okay, now what we do want to encourage you to do as well, if you can, in the next two years with us, go through the whole Bible. Now, here's an encouragement. If any of you have access to an audio Bible, it only takes 70 hours or thereabouts to finish the entire Bible. 70 hours. One of the per persons that we told this to uh, last week said, huh, that's just three days. Yep. If you were to play an audio Bible just for half an hour a day, you're going to finish it in, before the year is up. If you pay, play 40 minutes, you'll finish it in half a year. Okay, so we want to encourage you, even if you, even if you don't read it, have the audio Bible going, you know, while you're maybe washing up or having breakfast or in, a, in, a, in, your, in the train or in your vehicle. You know, we would love to see you go through the whole Bible, even if it's audio version. You know, so you can do that. Some people go through it twice in the time that they're with us. Now, <clears throat> things to bring for each lesson, please do bring your Bible. Even though we have lots of content in here, oftentimes we'll ask you to turn to your Bible. When people do ask questions, we will often say, okay, now let's turn to this part of the Bible. doesn't matter which version of the Bible you have, but just so you know, in our notes, we do use the New Living Translation, the NLT, because it's uh, more accessible for teenagers. Okay, for younger people to, to read as well. One, one of the uh, complaints, so to speak, people say is, oh, my Bible is too hard to read. I don't understand it. So we intentionally chose an easier to understand uh, translation. But please note, 
just because we choose that, it's not as if it's our favorite translation. When we study the Bible, we use many different English translations. So please feel free to have whichever one to, that you're most comfortable with. Now, handling questions. <clears throat> just so you know, you are free to type in our chat box questions that you may have. Okay, as we are teaching uh, the, the lesson and we will pause at certain points to address your question. You can also feel free. We will stop very regularly in a lesson to say, okay, any questions or any comments, feel free at a point in time to unmute your mic and to ask those questions. But because you're a pretty big class, you know, um, we also have time after class. So we normally end with closing prayer. Well, I mean, we're a little bit over time right now, but we normally end with closing prayer at a two-hour mark. And then we invite people to stay back after class if you have more questions or if you just want to chat. And so we will still be here. But you have access to us in between class. If you have questions or comments, you can email us. You know, if you want to meet us, you can meet us. Okay, those of you who are in Singapore, all right, and we can deal with private questions as well. So please feel free. You have access to us in between classes as well. So if you don't get to ask your question in class, don't feel like all is lost. Just just message us. Uh, we are on WhatsApp. We're on Telegram. We do prefer that so we you know we can. But feel free to also email us. Mm. Now, after this, um, we will also be sending out a calendar. Okay, we'll be sending out a calendar just so you know. We typically go through the whole year, except for public holidays. Sorry, public holidays follow Singapore public holidays. Okay, but we'll also be having a vacation time. So for instance, Christmas, uh, we stop for three weeks. So we do have a Christmas break. Uh, normally once a year, um, because the rest of our team doesn't sit in Singapore, our ministry team sits in other countries, um, we do take a month off because we physically meet up and do a whole lot of work with them as well. So unfortunately, we set the start date of this class in July. But for this year, our team meetings, we're going to be gone the month of October. So we're going to be finishing up the first module. We're going to be finishing up the first eight lessons. And then we're going to take October will be off. It'll be a recess for the month of October. We come back in November. And then we have a Christmas break. But starting next year, it'll be more regular. Okay, we will give you the schedule. So we will email you the schedule uh, sometime during uh, this week uh, uh, as well. Mm. Um, cameras. Thank you so much for keeping your cameras on. It really helps us learn names and faces. You are also going to learn that Amos and I are pretty personable people. <laughs> you know, um, we actually don't like teaching in Zoom because we don't get to know you personally. So, you know, so um, depending on how much you want to relate to us or with us, but at least if we know your names and faces, we can greet you by name. Mm. Well, I can at least see if you're following along. <laughs> or everyone's like, huh, what, what are they saying? Then we know, okay, we have to back up and explain again. Okay, so um, those are kind of the housekeeping things. Any questions or comments on logistics admin stuff or anything one thing about questions is that we will cover a lot of ground genesis to revelation so sometimes you will see us respond with we'll give you a brief answer but later on we'll come back to that when we get to that event uh in god's chronology 
So, so often you will see that particular event teaches particular theological <coughs> truths. So if we haven't reached that event yet, we may defer your question. Mm. So if you're asking something that will only come up within the church age, we'll give you a little brief answer that says, can you wait till we get to you know, module four and then we'll discuss it more uh, fully. So sometimes we'll, we'll say that as well so that we don't end up spending a whole lot of time discussing something that we'll cover in depth later on. Mm. Okay, I see a question here. Can you share about your background, ministry, church you're attending? Okay, we'll do that in the next lesson, at the start of the next lesson, okay? Uh, we try our best not to exceed the time, so we'll, we'll do that then. Now, any other questions or comments uh, today? Nope, okay, we'll stay back after class. If you do have any questions or comments, you feel free to stay back. Uh, and we'll just close in prayer now. Mm. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you that we could have a good connection and we could see the class members and start to put faces with names. And uh, thank you again that you are a God who has recorded history for us to read, for us to learn about you, to learn about ourselves, to learn where you are taking uh, the world so that we are not left clueless about your plans. So Father, we pray that the group that we have this morning will be willing to journey with us through your work end to end and we can start to learn more about you, understand you more deeply, get to know you as our Father and learn what you are like and how you interact with us. And that way we can grow in our faith, grow and strengthen our foundations that we may not just survive but thrive as a disciple of Christ in this chaotic world that we are living in. So we look forward to seeing this class again and we pray that it will be a fruitful journey of growth and learning and understanding where we can not only have a firm foundation, but where we can in turn go out and help others, go and disciple others as well. So thank you, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank we'll see you, you next week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Overview. We'll be doing Lesson 1 in the next recording. Visit interlocked.online for more information.